physicians are the hardest working folks in terms of on average, if you compare the average physician with any other line of work or profession, we're hardworking folks. And there are private equity folks, corporations, non-physicians, folks in turtlenecks that know this and exploit this. And that is something that we have to be aware of when we are becoming employed physicians. Welcome to Doc Working the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, co-host of the podcast, and I want to thank you for being here with us today. If you're a physician or other healthcare professional or student who's interested in exploring how to live your best life while doing your meaningful work, you've come to the right place. A lot of us are interested in transitioning into non-clinical careers or side gigs, picking up a side gig that we can do in addition to our clinical career. And this is something we get a lot of questions about at Doc Working. So today I'm bringing a guest who has successfully made that transition and who can walk us through the steps. Dr. Virgie Bright Ellington is an internal medicine physician and medical billing expert. She earned her MD at the University of Michigan Medical School and trained at the Cambridge Hospital of Harvard Medical School. She has practiced in primary care and psychiatric settings, and then she transitioned her work into the insurance world, where she became a health insurance executive, as well as an author of the What Your Doctor Wants You to Know series, and a former New York One News Health contributor. And she's also been featured in Dallas News, several podcasts, and national magazines. Dr. Virgie Bright Ellington has been a guest here on Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast before. And you can listen to that episode, which was about crushing medical debt. And that was episode 195. And we'll reference that in the show notes. Dr. Virgie Bright Ellington, welcome back to Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. It's always wonderful talking with you. It really is a pleasure to talk with you as well. I'm so intrigued by the path that you've taken. And I know a lot of our guests will be really interested in hearing how you did that, the decisions that you made along the way and what drove you in that direction. And I think there are a lot of us who are interested in actually taking some similar steps. And so I'd love it if we can talk through the process from your vantage point as someone who has been successful in taking these steps. Sure. So I do have to say that one thing in the back of a lot of our minds, I think, when it comes to physicians working in the United States, is that culturally, we're taught to think that if you're not practicing, actively practicing, you're not a real physician. Now, there is a tiny bit, a nugget of truth, I think, in that, in that if you don't keep up your education, your CME, your not just licensure, but your subspecialty certification, your board certification, then yes. So I think that's important to keep up no matter what you're doing, if you're not actively seeing patients. But it reminds me when you asked about, you know, well, you know, how did my journey start from being a practicing clinician to non-traditional or non-practicing physician work? is I remember my kid's dad, uh, my ex-husband saying to me, he knew that I really thought about 
once our kids were born that I would not be practicing clinically full time. Now he is a neonatologist, which is a hospital-based specialty. And so you're doing intervention. So yeah, if you're a surgeon, if you do intervention, sure, your skills can get rusty. I am an internal medicine physician. You know, my work is usually in my head. So I really think it's important. Yes, we keep it up, but I disagreed with him in that he was like, no, you cannot, you have to at least practice a little bit in order to be, he felt a valid, a real physician. Otherwise I was just, I don't know what he thought. He was saying, I guess maybe I'm just pretending it was a waste of all the resources that all the folks, you know, that put poured into us when we we're in med school and residency was just going to not. And I just want to say, nah, that's not true, but let's keep up our board certification and our CME and let's put that to bed. And I realized that it was always a conversation and always in the back of my mind, because while I was in training, I thought, you know what, there were two things. I really did not want to have all of my income depend on taking care of patients. I thought, well, there's got to be a way I can take care of patients and not have my income, my livelihood depend on it. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, as I mentioned earlier, is that I knew that once I had kids that I was not going to feel comfortable being trapped in an office in patients and not being able to be actively involved and around, have the flexibility of raising children. And that was because I'm, I'm dating myself. Yeah. Well, I'm dating myself and I didn't know about the nanny culture. I came from, <laughs> so dating myself. I grew up in the seventies in Detroit, which had a lot of transplanted Southerners who really believed in corporal punishment. And basically, you know, we were abused, my brother and I, they thought corporate punishment was appropriate discipline, but we were too scared to tell our parents because we thought we would get in trouble at home. Right. And I swore, it was like, if I ever have kids, I'm not going to be in a position where that can happen to my kids. And so fast forward, I'm in New York city working and as a physician, and I realized, okay, you know, kids are coming. I didn't know about the whole nanny culture, but there is still some validity of being around and working in the house and being in the house when your nannies are there. So I'll just say that, that that was helpful in terms of choosing a non-traditional physician work. One question for those of us who are not from New York city, what do you mean by the nanny culture? The nanny culture is there are people who work for minimum wage and they're actually independent. They don't work for like a preschool or there's not a business corporation that they work for that they get employed out. You know, there's not an employer company that they're working for. They're working for themselves independently and they're everywhere. It's plentiful. And because you're in New York city, you don't need a car and it's easier not to have a car. The subway system and mass transit system, it's really easy for folks who are newly starting out, or this is what they want to do to say, you know what, I'm going to take care of children full time. That is the services that I offer. And that was not a thing where I grew up in the Midwest and back then labor in terms of they either didn't have a car or was not thought of as something outside of preschool, frankly, when and where I grew up. Again, dating myself, this is back in the 70s. So that's what I mean by nanny culture. So when you say you weren't aware of it, are you saying that you 
felt that you needed to stay home because you didn't know that there was a possibility that you could bring someone in to help? Or do you mean that you didn't want to do that? And that was the choice that you wanted to make? Well, I was pleasantly surprised when I started having kids. I was in New York City and I'm finding out, wow, I can afford to hire a nanny, just like you can afford to hire house cleaning services. You can hire landscaping services. That's a thing. And so I, once I found that out, I thought, well, I had already left full-time clinical practice when my oldest was born. My oldest, I have two sons uh, now 14 and a half and 16. When my 16 year old was born, my first was born. That's when I discovered that, wow, okay, I didn't necessarily need to leave full-time clinical practice because there would be a nanny in our home, that that was a thing. But I was like, you know what? I'm still happy that I can still work from my home office. I'm still in the house, even if it's on the top floor, she's on the bottom or there on the bottom floor, whatever. It makes a difference when you're still around, when I have the flexibility of saying, okay, I can schedule meetings here and there and then come back down and, and take you know my young one to school or attend an event or support he and the school or something. That would make a huge difference. Yeah, that's what I mean by the nanny culture and why I discovered it late by accident as, you know, being a brand new parent in New York City. And so I had already made the decision, yeah, at that point to, I had already left full-time clinical practice because I didn't know that that was an option. When you were making the decision to leave your full-time practice, how did you make that decision? Number one, did you decide and consider multiple different non-clinical career options first? And did you pursue all of those or one of those? That's one question. And then combining that question with another question, which is, did you have the job lined up ready to start or did you quit and then give yourself the time to pursue it all already without the full-time job? So what I, going back to referencing us in the back of my mind, I knew that I did not want to if there was a way for me to be a physician, use my physician brain and help as many people as possible without having to see individual patients one after another inside a, a building, you know, in an office space. In the back of my mind, I thought, well, there's gotta be a way I can make passive income and still maybe see patients for a nonprofit organization or that kind of thing. So I started a business. And that was, I want to say within a couple of years after arriving in New York City in the, I would say around 2000. And I started a business that was basically a personal care product development company. And so I thought, okay, the launch product, we'll get it out there and that'll be passive income. And then I'll run it full time and be able to work from home. How did that go? So yeah. <laughs> it turns out that the book that I came up with to market the product was ended up being more popular and people were more interested in that than the actual product. The product was a topical to prevent ingrown razor bumps, ingrown hairs. And you needed back, this is around 2000 before, you know, online marketing was a known thing. And I didn't know what I was doing and didn't know I needed a marketing partner and how to do it online, blah, 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 blah. And so I thought, well, I need to write a book 
because as a physician, I was very frustrated with having to just have one-on-one conversations. There were things that I wanted to like jump on a rooftop and get a megaphone and scream across the country. One of them was, look, ladies and, and gentlemen, cervical cancer is an STD. Now, this is back in the late 90s, you know, around 2000, before we know now about every lay people pretty much know about the HPV vaccine, but that wasn't known then. That wasn't a thing then. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a book, what your doctor wants you to know series, what your gynecologist wants you to know, what your dermatologist wants you to know. And the dermatology section was going to talk about or focus and feature the ingrown topical product. That was the plan. And so I had my kid and by that time, my first child, and I left full-time practice I'm like, okay, I'm never going back to clinical practice except to support people, maybe do nonprofit work, that kind of thing, see patients in that capacity, but not full-time because I'm going to work on this. (laughs) I'm going to run the company and the book, it needs a book tour. So the book was being launched. My second son was born. I had an 18-month-old and a six-month-old and I was getting ready to hit send on the publisher button to send the manuscript to the publisher. And I thought, okay, I can get this done. And we had all the book tour I had planned. And I told the publisher, yes, I'm going to do a book tour for you, la, 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 la. And 10 days later, my father died suddenly, sudden cardiac death. And he had been my mother's primary caretaker and everything stopped. And being a sandwich generation doc. I was a long distance caretaker for my mom who lived in the Midwest now and a parent of two young kids. And when my dad passed away, Dr. Jen, he had been such a positive influence on my life. I didn't realize that, frankly, that my marriage was a problem. He was a positive male influence and it buffered me realizing, oh, my marriage is a problem. And the book tour just got put away. I had to stop whatever I was doing and get a real quote unquote job with benefits, because I realized I was going to have to be head of household and the marriage was going to have to end. And that's how I came to the insurance world. People call that going to the dark side, but I thought, you know what? I'm, well, I didn't understand that people thought of it that way (laughs) until a colleague of mine, I called and told her, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Blah, 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 And when I told her that I took a position with, and I didn't even tell her what the position is with this health insurance company, she screamed essentially, well, remember what it's like to be a physician. And she hung up on me. Oh and my that goodness. Was my first clue. <laughs> that was my first clue that is considered the other side. Well, what I was doing, Dr. Jen, was I joined their appeals team. And so I tell people, I'm not Dr. No, I don't do UM and UR, UM, UR, utilization management. I don't do that. I'm not Dr. No, I'm Dr. Maybe. So the appeals (laughs) departments of any insurance company has to determine if the policies that are clinical policies that an insurance company has, if they were followed. So if a person's care or physicians uh, since submits a claim for care and it's denied, 
they appeal and say it shouldn't have been denied. And I look at them like, you know what? You're absolutely right. It shouldn't have been denied or they're never going to pay for this. They're, they're just, it's always going to be considered experimental and investigational. Just get over it. Or maybe if you send me this information, this, this, and this, we can get it covered for you. So, and I thought I'm participating in supporting quality care in the United States. So I was really proud of the work that I did. Can I ask you a couple of questions about sure, how you got sure. there? First of all, I'm I'm sorry to hear about your father. I, oh, thanks. That sounds like such a difficult situation to find yourself in with two very young children and then trying to help take care of your mother and being such a long distance away. And I can imagine what a difficult situation it was to realize on top of that, that you're, you were going to have to become the sole breadwinner for your family as you became from being married with two kids to being a single mom. So hats off to you for everything you've accomplished. I mean, it's incredible, but you mentioned something that I have to ask you. There are two parts to this question as well. You had a publicist for your books and you had a tour lined up for your books. And even though that never happened, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who are saying, wait a minute, I want to write a book and get a publisher and have a tour. Like, how did you do that? First question is, how did you find the publisher? What were the steps to get you to that point that you had someone who was managing and publishing your work and helping you to market it? And then if we could, I would really love to go into the question of just how you found the work for the insurance company as well. Yeah. So the way that I found my book publisher was the old fashioned way. Again, this is like 20 years plus years ago, this is in the old ages. This is like pre everything. You know, you can, you're literally, your fingers can do the walking. You can Google everything, right? There was, a, I did, of course, it was all online in my search for a publisher, but I found a publisher who publishes nonfiction, but specifically medically related books. So it was a former cardiologist who would have physicians write books about different topics related to diseases or conditions or treatments, and then sell them en masse as a wholesaler, basically, to insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies where they're interested in giving them out as promos to feature their work or their products, right? Their drugs. And so they picked it up. I found them just Googling and Googling and they picked it up. I was looking for a literary agent prior to that and never really found one. They were all like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, very first book, I hadn't had a book prior. And there's a thing, you, you never make money on your first book. It just sets the stage. So you can make money, you usually make money maybe on your second book and later. So that's how I came to finding the publisher. And then I found the PR person because when I was working on PR for my product, for our company, our personal care product development company, I had been doing PR and went to this journalist convention and met a lot of friends on the way back and sharing a shuttle to the airport on the way back. And we became friends forever. Well, she was in the media in New York City, which is, you know, it's like the number one media market in the country. And she just supported me and she would introduce me to this person and that person and the rest is history. 
And so fast forward, frankly, I fell into finding it when I realized I had to find a real J-O-B, a real job with benefits to be able to be a head of household as a single mom and take care of my kids. I just did the old fashioned thing. I just threw out whatever I just applied for everything. I just did the old fashioned online searches and that's what they were looking for. So just chance favors a prepared mind, just doing one thing leads to another, just keep going. So connections and just inertia got you yes. there. Well, not inertia, just, just looking. I, inertia <laughs> as was in no, being, there was no inertia applications. <laughs> You're just working just hard. Of, always. I was always, always online, always, always online, always, always. So there's another thing I want to talk about too, and bring up is that physicians are the hardest working folks in terms of on average, if you compare the average physician with any other line of work or profession, we're hardworking folks. And there are private equity folks, corporations, non-physicians, folks in turtlenecks that know this and exploit this. And that is something that we have to be aware of when we are becoming employed physicians. So that's something you have to keep in the back of your mind, because fast forward, when after almost 10 years of working for this insurance company, it was bought out by a retailer and the overnight, literally the culture changed. And I realized, you know what, I need to put out a shingle again, meaning do something else. And it's a long story, but I realized, you know what, I have to write another book. Now, neither of these things, Dr. Jen, would have been able to happen if I hadn't have been an employed physician as a resident way back then and taking advantage of 403B accounts and or 401Ks. When we're in, in training, and they're four, usually 403Bs. And the reason why that's important, I want to talk about that, is because it's all about having options in life to be able to do non-traditional physician work, to use your physician brain, right? As physicians, we see the needs, but we think that in the culture tells us we have to go and get private equity or investors or pitch. We don't have time for that. That takes a lot of time. But what you can do is invest in yourself, be your own investor. And what you can do is, and I did this twice, 20 years ago with the first company and the book, the first book, and I'm doing it now with our second company, Crush Medical Debt and the ongoing book series. The thing that allowed me to do that was what's used to be called back in the day, regulation definancing, which is essentially taking your 403B or your 401K and investing, instead of investing in other companies on the stock exchange, you invest in your own company. You turn your company into a C corporation and you invest in it with your own resources, your own 403B or IRA or 401K resources. And I mentioned that it used to be called Regulation D Financing. Now they call it ROBS, Roll Over as Business Startup. And what that does is people don't talk about it, which is really baffling to me because it really saved my life. It really allowed me to transition from clinical work full-time to full-time non-traditional work, but I'm still helping people as a physician. That would not be an option for me if I didn't know about this regulation definancing or Rob's financing. There's a company called Benetrends and they don't pay me. I don't 
advertise for them, but I love them so much because I've worked with them twice in 20 years and they allowed me to invest my money from being an employed physician, even starting as a resident to now to say, hey, I don't need to spend extra time doing investing uh, investor searches. So just a quick example, let's say you have 100K in your IRA, 403B, 401K, you take out a loan to start your business. Well, if you separate from your company and before it is paid off, I think I have five years to pay it off. But if you separate from your company before you pay it off, that's an automatic withdrawal and you're hit with taxes, 40%. Let's say tax rate 30, 40%. Then you've got the 10% penalty if you're under age 59 and a half. So there's that. So instead of having the whole $100,000 to invest, you only have $60,000. As opposed, if you do regulation D financing or ROBS, you have that whole $100,000 to invest in your company. So that's why I really wanted to take a moment to talk about that in terms of having options to be able to transition to non-traditional or non-clinical work. Yeah, that's actually a great point. That is a terrific program. Another company that specializes in doing that work is Guidant. And Mm. so you're right on point by mentioning that as an option, but it also begs the question of, how long is the runway? How long does it take to get something like this up and running? Oh run? my gosh. Thank you for asking that. It cracks me up. I have to laugh because I am so dating myself. When I first did this 20 years ago, it took about, when it was still called regulation definancing, it took about three to four months. Now, 20 years later, it takes not even, it took three weeks door to door from the first phone call and say, hey, I'm back. I want to start a new company. Let's go. So that got you the financing, got you, yes. you got your C Corp up and all of that. But what is the length of the runway from when you begin your business and you're actually, you have overhead that you're using that startup money to get your business off the ground. What has been your experience in terms of the length of time to go from zero to profitable in starting a business at, or have you gotten there with the publishing? Tell me about how that has worked. For someone who may be interested in in starting their own business. Yeah. So, you know, and all the stuff you see on TV and all the stuff that you see in the media, all that glamorous stuff, they don't talk about that, right? How long does it take for you to get profitable and for you to be able to say, okay, this is a going concern and I didn't just spend all of my retirement and now I have no money for retirement and no income. I can't support my family. I hear all the time people who are on YouTube and these other channels that are promoting entrepreneurship or doctorpreneurs, they say like, oh, it doesn't cost anything to create this course. And what they're not saying is, yes, it doesn't cost anything for you to create the course materials that are already in your mind that you already know, except your time. But when it comes to marketing that course, that's a whole different ball game. So maybe we should even specifically talk about marketing because you can create a, a phenomenal product, but if no one knows it exists, then you don't have a profitable business. So what has been your experience with marketing itself? Thank you for bringing that up because that's what got me into trouble with my first business where I did not realize I needed a marketing partner or a marketing model. I thought, well, I spent a lot of time writing a business model and all that. 
and there was no focus and understanding that I needed to have marketing as primary and or a marketing partner before I ran out of runway and I had to close and get a real job. The thing that's important, like you said, it's all about marketing. It's all about marketing. And that's where all of my resources go. So my investment, this company only been up and running. This is this probably 10th month. So it's been less than a year. And yes, in a year or even two years in the business model and marketing plan, I realize we're not going to be able to get turnover to be profitable in the first year. Because to your point, the resources part of the expenses and overhead is marketing, hiring a PR firm. So my book publisher has PR marketing people as part of the team, but that only takes you so far. And it's really just focused on the book in order to market the products that are related to crush medical debt, the masterclass and the associated books and that kind of thing. I had to hire a PR person. And so we're still in the middle of doing that. And that takes a big chunk of resources. I would say I spend twice to five times as much on marketing as I do the IT infrastructure every month. So that's huge. So in my case, we're looking for sponsors. There's two pieces of income streams. One is sponsorships for the radio show, Ask a Doctor with Dr. Virgie on Voice America and the Dr. Virgie media brand that includes, you know, crush medical debt, the book and the masterclass. So there's sponsorships for that. That's near term. That's something that we can get in less than a year. The long term is, you know, where do most people get their insurance from their health insurance in this country from employers, right? So we're partnering with employer benefits companies and things like that companies that support people getting benefits with their employers in this country. Terrific. So it's a huge deal. And to your point also, that's still marketing because no one knows what we do when we're pitching to folks. That's why it's a long-term play for income from the other half, which is partnering with insurance companies and brokers and benefits folks and that kind of thing because they don't know who we are. So it's all about marketing to your point. You've got to put marketing first. Absolutely. We've had previously, it's really scratching the surface on a very huge topic, but it's something that there's so much interest in and so many people who are interested in entrepreneurship and developing a side gig. And in reality, it's a huge undertaking, much bigger than a lot of people lead others to believe. And there is a lot more to it than meets the eye initially. And uh, as you and I have both learned in other businesses prior to the ones we currently run, it's a big process. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights. And one of the things we do inside the Doc Working Thrive community, which is our subscription coaching service, is we do have guests come and talk in small group forums where people can just directly ask you questions. And I would love to invite you to do that inside of the Doc Working Thrive group, if that would be something you would have time to do. Oh my gosh, Dr. Jen, you know, I'll make time to do it. You know, you make time for things that's important to you. And this is really, really, really important. You know, I want my physician brothers and sisters to understand that, you know, you have options. It's all about having options in life. We have options. You have options. And I want folks to be able to understand that. So anytime I'm your woman, I'd be happy to. It would be my honor and privilege. 
Dr. Virgie Bright Ellington, thank you as always for your friendship and for coming on the podcast. It's truly a pleasure to have this conversation with you and I look forward to many others. I love talking with you, Dr. Jen. Thank you so much for having me again. And thank you for joining us today on Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. At Doc Working, we're here to help you maximize your potential on your own terms and help you live your best life. Top executives, athletes, actors all achieve greatness with the support of professional coaches. As a healthcare professional, you deserve ongoing coaching towards success in your career and in your life outside of work, helping you to balance and integrate work and life in the personalized way that is specific to you. At Doc Working, your success is defined by you, and our coaching programs help accelerate your path to get you there. And since our programs come with CME credit, you can let your CME budget help you to prioritize your own well-being. Please check us out at docworking.com. And until next time, thank you for listening to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.